0: New season, out on Spotify
1: soon. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
0: Portland, Oregon, 1926. The Withers family has fallen on hard times. They decide to rent out a vacant room to make ends meet.
1: Beata Withers puts a sign in the window as her husband goes to work. She doesn't expect any inquiries so soon, but only a few hours into the day, she hears a knock.
0: She answers the door to see a large man grinning at her. He holds a worn-out Bible in his large hands, and he talks quickly but confidently. He's interested in the room.
1: Beata's nervous, but he seems trustworthy. Only a good man would be carrying the good book. She welcomes him in and shows him around.
0: Halfway through the tour, he asks her a question. Is that a water stain on the
1: ceiling? Beata doesn't remember a water stain on the ceiling. She looks up, searching, but all she finds is pain.
0: The man wraps his massive hands around her exposed neck squeezing the life from her body. She looks him in his once charming eyes, now cold and emotionless. He reminds her of an ape, bestial and
1: terrifying. She is one of many victims of Earl Leonard Nelson, the Dark Strangler, the Gorilla Killer.
0: Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we dive into the minds and madness of Serial Killers. Today, we're discussing the early life of Earl Nelson, the man infamously known as the Gorilla Killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson.
1: Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar.
0: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
0: This week, we're covering the early life and first attack of the guerrilla killer, Earl Nelson. Reputed to have abnormally long arms and unusually large hands, Earl Nelson roamed the United States and Canada, strangling unsuspecting landladies in their own homes.
1: During the 17 months when Earl roamed the North American countryside, he managed to slaughter at least 21 women and one infant boy. Next week, we'll cover this series of killings that made him one of the most prolific murderers of the early 21st century.
0: Earl Leonard Nelson was born Earl Farrell on May 12, 1897 to parents James and Francis, but it wasn't long before tragedy pulled the Farrells away from their baby boy.
1: In February of 1898, only nine months after Earl's birth, his mother died a horrific and painful death from a prolonged syphilis infection.
0: While still an infant, Earl Nelson lost his mother. And yet, the tragedies continued.
1: Because syphilis is a sexually transmitted disease, Earl's father also fell victim to its crushing effects. By August of 1898, James Farrell followed his wife into the grave. At only 15 months old, Earl Nelson was an orphan.
0: Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
1: Thanks, Greg. According to a study on the effects of orphanhood conducted by Dr. Constance A. Nyamukapa and several others, orphaned children can suffer much greater psychological distress than non-orphaned children. The study says, quote, effects of orphanhood contributing to their increased levels of distress included trauma, being out of school, being cared for by a non-parent, inadequate care, child labor, physical abuse, and stigma and discrimination. The study also found that receipt of assistance was not associated with reduced psychological distress. The mental and emotional scar of losing one's parents is so profound that even as people try to help, there's little they can do to assuage an orphan's pain.
0: Even though Earl was only a toddler when he lost both his parents, the damage and pain from their loss was something that would affect him for the rest of his life.
1: With his parents gone, Earl was raised by the only family he had left. His maternal grandmother, Jenny Nelson, adopted him as her own. With this adoption, Earl Leonard Farrell was renamed Earl Leonard Nelson.
0: Yet Jenny was not particularly equipped to raise an infant orphan boy. She was a widow with two children of her own, 12-year-old Willis Nelson and 10-year-old Lillian.
1: The age difference between Earl and his aunt and uncle made it difficult for them to connect, at least in Earl's youth. And Jenny did little to mend this gap. She was often out of the house, working hard to provide for the three children.
0: Jenny was also staunchly religious, both sources stating that she attended a Pentecostal church. She was very strict in her religious teachings and took a literal interpretation of the Bible some sources claimed she viewed any sexual activity as a filthy sin.
1: With his uncle and aunt being substantially older than him, and his grandmother frequently out of the home, young Earl Nelson had no one with whom he could connect.
0: As he grew, he became a quiet and morbid child. He spoke and smiled rarely, and alternated from hyperactive-matic episodes to moody, depressive states. His dour moods made it difficult for him to have friends, even with children his own age.
1: His detachment from ordinary human relationships led to further strange behavior. He seemed completely uninterested in following social rules. One of the most notable examples could be seen in his manner of eating.
0: According to author Harold Schechter's biography of Earl, Bestial, at dinner, Earl would drench his food in olive oil, put his face to the plate and slurp up his meal like a caged beast at feeding time.
1: His aunt and uncle were disgusted by his eating habits and ridiculed him for his behavior. They hated being in public with Earl and felt he was embarrassing to be around.
0: Then when Earl began attending school, he developed another strange habit. He set out in the morning wearing clean clothing but he would return home in different clothing, sometimes wearing
1: literal rags instead. When his grandmother asked him about his clothing change, Earl refused to answer, and his behavior soon turned from strange to downright awful.
0: He unleashed extreme temper tantrums and refused to do anything he was told. By 1904, seven-year-old Earl was expelled from school for his terrible behavior, and his principal called him incorrigible.
1: Now left with little to do but wander, Earl began his first forays into the world of crime.
0: He snuck into shops throughout the neighborhood and stole any small item he could get his hands on.
1: It was not uncommon for his grandmother to be called home from work by an angry shopkeeper who didn't want Earl skulking around his or her store.
0: Also around this time, Earl began memorizing passages of the Bible, showing a particular fascination with the prophetic book of Revelation. Perhaps he initially studied the words to connect with his religious grandmother, but he started quoting strange passages at weird and inappropriate times.
1: For example, while at church, he might quote Revelation, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication.
0: Naturally, a small child reciting that sort of passage would make people uncomfortable.
1: Given all his odd, disruptive, and disturbing behaviors, young Earl Nelson seemed to be doing everything he could to keep people at a distance, And in short time, he suffered one more tragedy that prevented him from living an ordinary life.
0: His mind would be forever changed when a bicycle ride gone wrong brought him to the brink of death.
1: In a moment, we'll hear about Earl's near-death experience. And now, back to the story.
0: Earl Leonard Nelson's life was forever scarred by tragedy when both his mother and father died from syphilis before he was even two years old. He was taken in by his maternal grandmother, Jenny Nelson, but she was rarely around. Earl was left alone most of the time.
1: By the time he was seven, Earl was severely maladjusted, and in 1904, he was kicked out of his grade school for bad behavior.
0: Life would not get any easier for the young man. He was about to experience one more trauma at the hands
1: of fate. At some point in 1908, when Earl was 11, he took his uncle's bicycle out on the San Francisco streets.
0: As he rode, he came across a group of kids around the same age, playing on the side of the road. As he passed them, they turned to watch him ride.
1: Realizing that he had their attention, Earl decided to show off.
0: He pedaled as quickly as he could, pushing the bike to its upper limits. As he reached top speeds, he noticed a San Francisco trolley car making its way down the same street.
1: To show off his speed, he raced out in front of the trolley car.
0: For one brief moment, as Earl's back tire passed in front of the trolley car's bumper, he likely felt invincible. But before the trolley driver could stop the vehicle, the massive machine picked up just a tiny amount of
1: speed. The trolley clipped the back of Earl's bicycle, sending him flying.
0: Earl was thrown backwards, his legs tangling within the metal frame of the bike.
1: The back of his head crashed against the pavement, cracking his skull.
0: The driver slammed on the brakes, but the large trolley had difficulty stopping. As it ground to a halt, the bicycle, and therefore Earl, got caught beneath its tires.
1: Earl's head was dragged along the concrete for the better part of a city block. When the witnesses to the event rushed to his aid, they found that the traumatic blow had ground a hole into the back of his head exposing his brain to the open air.
0: Earl was rushed to the hospital, but there was little the doctors could do. He was comatose. They bandaged his head and laid him down in a bed, waiting for him to die.
1: When Jenny arrived to check on her grandson, the doctors broke the bad news. She sat at his side, waiting for his heart to stop
0: but it just kept beating.
1: The sun set on the injured Earl, and hours later, the sun rose again. A full 24 hours had passed, and Earl had somehow managed to live through the day.
0: Doctors still believed he would die, but five more days passed, and Earl was still breathing.
1: On the sixth day, Earl opened his eyes. He had survived his brush with death.
0: Unfortunately, after the accident, Earl's behavior grew even more tiresome than it had been before. His head was racked with piercing headaches, and his memory had been greatly phased by the blow.
1: God damn! Damn it! Damn it! To make matters worse, he developed a tick. He began randomly shouting out swear words and Bible verses in equal measure, a condition somewhat similar to the popular conception of Tourette's syndrome.
0: Earl's mind was hounded by these debilitating effects for the rest of his life. Then, soon enough, tragedy struck again.
1: Shortly after Earl's miraculous survival, his grandmother, Jenny Nelson, passed away.
0: With his grandmother gone, Earl's only remaining relatives were his uncle Willis and his Aunt Lillian, both young adults, 23 and 21, respectively.
1: It's unclear what Willis was doing after the death of his mother, but it's doubtful that he wanted anything to do with strange little Earl.
0: But Lillian had grown to feel a familial fondness for the boy. She had gotten married and moved out of the home, and in her adult life had come to sympathize with the tragic happenings that had led Earl to become the child that he was. Due to this familial bond, Lillian and her husband welcomed Earl into their home. Unfortunately, Earl did not repay his
1: aunt's kindness in turn. Instead, his behavior only became more bizarre. As he entered puberty, Earl grew into a large and stocky teen. His hands were sizable, and his arms were long. He periodically showed off his newfound strength by walking around the house in a handstand and carrying large objects in his teeth.
0: He also developed a fondness for dark, isolated cellars. Sometimes he broke into his neighbor's cellars, descended into the cold blackness, and sat alone for hours at a time.
1: A recent study published in the Journal of Environmental Psychology by Anna Steidler and Lioba Veert may provide some insight into this behavior. This study found that darkness elicits a feeling of being free from constraints and triggers a risky, explorative processing style which means both priming darkness and actual dim illumination improve creative performance. This would seem to suggest that Earl was retreating to the cellars to free his mind from external convention and allow his mind to wander places it otherwise was not allowed to go. While for most people,
0: this freedom of thought might be beneficial, for Earl, it likely only made things worse.
1: In fact, based on interviews conducted with Earl after his capture, he likely spent his time in these cellars daydreaming about sexual violence.
0: Earl was known to masturbate frequently. Sometimes he spied on his female cousin, who would have only been a young child at the time, as she undressed for bed.
1: Then, when Earl was 15, He started exploring the seedy parts of San Francisco, meeting up with sex workers whenever he had the time and the money.
0: In order to fund his illicit activities, Earl worked menial odd jobs around town. His strength was a boon for manual labor, but he was almost incapable of holding down a steady job.
1: He would routinely have temper tantrums at work, sometimes storming away from his job entirely, Earl started having one-sided conversations with invisible friends, creeping out any employers who may have been able to overlook his other odd behaviors.
0: These problems continued for seven long years. Lillian and her family eventually felt unsafe with the hulking and uncontrollable teen wandering around their home. He was too large and too stubborn for her to discipline. She hoped that someday he might move on from their house without confrontation.
1: Then in the spring of 1915, she got her wish.
0: 18-year-old Earl wandered away from his aunt's home without word or warning.
1: Earl somehow found his way to the small town of Plymouth, California, a full 140-mile walk northeast of San Francisco.
0: He had aimlessly wandered halfway across the state of California, managing to fund his expedition through petty crimes and the occasional odd job.
1: As Earl meandered through the forests of eastern California, he came across a small cabin in the woods.
0: The cabin was secluded and old. It looked run down and undisturbed, and Earl thought that it
1: was abandoned. Using his considerable strength, Earl broke into the cabin and made himself at home. He thought the abandoned cabin could make a wonderful, temporary living place for him on his aimless journey through the countryside.
0: But as Earl was relaxing in the home, he heard the screeching of a wagon's wheels approach.
1: He jumped to his feet and peered down the driveway. Through a strange twist of fate, the owner of the cabin was returning the very same day Earl had arrived.
0: With horror, Earl realized he was caught.
1: Coming up, Earl's robbery ends with violence. And now back to the story.
0: In the spring of 1915, 18-year-old Earl Nelson wandered halfway across the state of California to the small town of Plymouth. He had broken into a cabin that he believed was abandoned, but that same afternoon, the owner came home.
1: As he looked out the front door, he could see a wagon approaching the cabin. Thinking quickly, Earl sprinted out the front door and bolted into the forest. He heard shouts echoing out from behind.
0: The owner had seen him flee.
1: As Earl ran, panting through the trees, he heard a cacophony of voices trail after him. It seemed an entire posse was chasing him down, and he was too slow to outrun them.
0: Eventually, he was routed and captured by the men of Plymouth. He was dragged into town and put on trial for robbery.
1: Without any money, Earl was unable to afford a lawyer. In a swift trial, he was found guilty of robbery and sentenced to two years in prison.
0: Earl was shipped all the way back to San Francisco where he was incarcerated in San Quentin State Prison.
1: He served his first day of the two-year term on July 25th, 1915, when he was only 18 years old. Earl's
0: time in San Quentin passed uneventfully. He was released on parole on September 6, 1916, having served slightly more than a year of
1: his sentence. Once released, he mulled around the Bay Area much as he had before likely fueling his meager existence through petty crime.
0: Accounts on his whereabouts between 1917 and 1921 differ depending on the source. However, some common threads remain the same.
1: While Earl was still on parole, he was arrested once more for petty theft, likely on March 9, 1917. He was sentenced to six months in jail.
0: He was released later that year but what he did with his time is unknown. He likely went back to wandering and committing petty crimes.
1: But America was in the throes of World War I. A draft had been instituted requiring every able-bodied man to enlist in the army.
0: So at some point in 1918, the 21-year-old joined the army using his birth name, Earl Farrell, However, the new position did not last long.
1: One night, he was ordered to stand guard. As he stood, bored out of his mind, freezing in the chill night air, Earl decided the army wasn't for him.
0: Halfway through the night, he abandoned his post, simply walking away into the dark.
1: When his commanding officers noticed his disappearance the next morning, they searched for him, but somehow Earl managed to evade capture.
0: Eager to avoid the military, Earl made his way east. Over the course of an unknown period of time, he found his way from San Francisco to Salt Lake City, Utah.
1: For a brief moment, Earl flirted with the idea of becoming a Mormon. He studied the Book of Mormon and attended a Mormon church but eventually decided the religion was not for him.
0: Once again, left without direction, Earl meandered back to the Bay Area. After two months of vagrancy, Earl decided to join the military a second time.
1: Because Earl had joined the army using his birth name, Earl Farrell, he realized he could use his legal name, Earl Nelson, without being recognized to be extra safe, he re-enlisted with the Navy instead of the Army, hoping the separate military branch would not have access to his Army records. Ultimately, Earl's trickery was successful, and he was assigned to a ship as a cook.
0: Yet as Earl took to the sea, his interest in the Navy would prove as limited as his interest in the Army. However, because he was stuck on a boat, He couldn't desert as easily as he had in the army. Still, he made it very clear to his crewmates that he had no interest in being a sailor.
1: Throughout his first month on board the ship, he often refused to work, blatantly disobeyed direct orders, and spent most of his time sprawled out on his bunk, ranting about the end of the world and the coming of the monstrous beings described in the Book of Revelation.
0: Earl's bizarre and obtrusive behavior became a thorn in the sides of his commanding officers. They tried taking disciplinary action to improve and correct him, but Earl remained unchanged. As they watched him ramble nonsensically and act erratically, they realized that he was far too much for them to handle.
1: His commanding officers deemed Earl mentally unfit to serve. Rather than release him into the world, they had him officially committed to Napa State Psychiatric Hospital.
0: 21-year-old Earl was put through psychiatric examinations to determine exactly what was wrong with him.
1: But as they interviewed him about his past, he confronted them with a series of odd claims.
0: For instance, Earl stated that he had masturbated every single day from his 13th birthday until his 18th birthday. Then he managed to stop masturbating entirely. Earl also claimed that he was an alcoholic, but that he had been sober for seven months prior to his admittance to the hospital.
1: When the doctors conducted blood tests to check on Earl's physical health, they found that he was infected with both gonorrhea and syphilis. The infections had clearly been left untreated for quite some time, and Earl was quick to tell the doctors that he had acquired them from sex workers when he was 16 years old.
0: Faced with Earl's clear lies and frightening truths, as well as his continued habit of frequently quoting biblical prophecies, the doctors concluded he was possessed by a constitutional psychopathic state, they believed he was so deeply psychopathic he could never be completely cured of his mental illness.
1: A study published in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease by Dr. Jay Townsend provides a greater context that makes this belief even more interesting. According to this study, American mental health patients generally believed that the individual is partially responsible for his condition, and with the proper motivation and help, he can improve. The study also posits that this cultural belief may stem from ideas within the mental health institutions themselves.
0: For Earl's American doctors to declare him incurable, This means Earl's behavior and psychosis had to be much more bizarre than the other patients at the hospital. Even among the mentally infirm, Earl's nature was extreme.
1: It was clear to the doctors that Earl would always be a dangerous man. As such, they kept him relegated to the ward for the hopeless inmates and simply planned to keep him contained for as long as they could.
0: Yet, Earl refused to be locked up. After six months of being institutionalized, Earl managed to break out of his ward and flee Napa State Hospital
1: entirely. The specifics of how he managed to escape aren't publicly known, but we do know that he was captured only a few days after his flight from the hospital.
0: Caged once again, Earl chafed under the restrictions placed upon him by the medical staff.
1: He kept his eyes open for another chance at freedom, and six months later, he sprinted out the doors and escaped Napa State Hospital for a second time.
0: This escape attempt played out much like the first. A manhunt was conducted, and Earl was recovered shortly afterwards.
1: However, over time, the doctors and state employees got tired of Earl and all his awful ways.
0: He was an exhausting and incurable patient, one they felt they would have to deal with for the rest of his life.
1: So when Earl escaped from the hospital a third time, sometime during the early months of 1919, the doctors decided to just let him go.
0: Rather than conducting another search, the doctors merely changed Earl's health documents and listed him as a discharged patient whose status had improved. They also stated that he was not violent, homicidal, or destructive. All the while, they knew that Earl was just as dangerous as he had always been.
1: The dangerous 22-year-old psychopath, Earl Nelson, was free to wander the streets of San Francisco once more.
0: While the hospital had allowed Earl to go free, he still believed that he was on the run. He went as quickly as he could to the only safe place he knew, his Aunt Lillian's home.
1: Upon seeing Earl approach her door after four years of his blissful absence, Lillian was shocked and terrified. Yet despite her initial feelings of fright, she took Earl in and allowed him to stay. He was her family after all.
0: Shortly after his arrival, Lillian helped Earl get a job as a janitor at St. Mary's Hospital.
1: While mopping the floors, he noticed an old maid meekly making the beds, 58-year-old Mary Martin.
0: Earl was immediately smitten. He asked Mary out on a date, and she agreed. Sadly, in her many years of life, Mary's date with Earl was one of the only dates she had ever been on.
1: Mary was lonely and had spent much of her life waiting for a man to appreciate her. When Earl turned his attention towards her, he showed the passion and drive that she had always longed for.
0: In a whirlwind love affair, Earl convinced her to marry him after only a matter of days.
1: In August of 1919, 22-year-old Earl Nelson and 58-year-old Mary Martin got married in a Catholic church.
0: But while Earl had initially acted loving and kind, once he had Mary trapped, he became controlling and possessive. He required her to meet his unreasonably frequent and sometimes unusual sexual demands.
1: Things only got worse when one day As he was working, he climbed a ladder and fell off, smashing his head against the ground.
0: Because Earl was working at a hospital, he was quickly bandaged and rushed to a bed for observation. However, the situation reminded him of his time in the psychiatric hospital, and he felt a strong urge to get out. Instead of sticking around to make sure he was okay, Earl fled from the hospital bloody bandages still wrapped around his skull.
1: Earl's behavior got even more erratic from there, as he began hallucinating visions and hearing voices that weren't there.
0: Over time, Mary began to fear her unstable and volatile husband. By most accounts, after six months of torturous marriage, she decided to divorce Earl Nelson near the end of 1919.
1: As Earl entered 1920, his location became difficult to verify. He likely spent most of his time at his Aunt Lillian's, doing the same things he had done when he lived there before. However, as time passed, Earl's hold on reality began to slip and his mental state became increasingly more dangerous and increasingly more unpredictable.
0: In addition, his sexual fantasies grew more depraved. In May of 1921, when Earl was 24 years old, his unstable mind finally gave way to violent sexual action.
1: As he wandered the streets of San Francisco, he peered into the windows of the houses that he passed. Through the basement window of Charles Summers' home, he saw 12-year-old Mary Summers playing with her toys.
0: Upon seeing her, Earl became possessed with the need to have her. He walked up to the door of the home
1: and knocked. 24-year-old Charles Summers Jr., Mary's older brother, answered the door.
0: (laughs) Earl put on a big smile and claimed to be a plumber. He said that Charles Sr. had asked him to check out the pipes in the basement and requested to be let inside.
1: Charles Jr. was completely unsuspecting of Earl's true intent. He allowed Earl inside and led him to the stairs.
0: As Earl descended, Charles Jr. stayed upstairs, going back to whatever work he was doing before.
1: When Earl reached the basement landing, his blood began pumping furiously.
0: He saw Mary playing with her toys, and he rushed right to her.
1: He wrapped his massive hands around her neck and began to squeeze.
0: But with the air still in her lungs, Mary managed to scream.
1: Charles Jr. raced to the basement where he saw Earl strangling his sister. He tackled Earl,
0: freeing his sister from the man's grasp. Earl quickly hopped to his feet and ran out the door, racing down the street.
1: But he didn't get far. Charles Jr. called the police. And after a quick search, the cops found Earl and arrested him for attempted murder.
0: Many hoped this would be the end of Earl Nelson's story. But sadly, his first attack was far from his last. He would soon rove across North America, leaving a trail of blood in his wake.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back Monday with part two of Earl Nelson's story, when he evolves into the most prolific American serial killer of the early 20th century.
0: You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts.
1: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free. From your phone, desktop, or smart speaker, to stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. And
0: don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Have a killer week.
1: Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Giles Hovseth, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.